says here, and then we'll move forward. He says here in Psalm 11, In the eternal I put my trust. Faith and trust, as Frank recently pointed out, are essentially the same thing, and I think pretty much synonymous. Faith is a very hard term for us to grasp, but trust we all understand, whether we trust one another or not, whether we trust God or not, and faith is trust in God. How say you to my soul, flee as a bird to your mountain? For lo, the wicked bend their bow, they make ready their arrow upon the string, that they may privately shoot at the upright in heart. If we do try to do what's right, uh, people will usually throw rocks and stones and arrows at us. But verse 3 is, is very interesting. It says, If the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? Now that is a question that has been very foremost in the congregations of God around the world now for uh, since 19 beginning in 1986, really, in 87, and forward from that time. Because the foundations were being destroyed, and people all had this question in their mind, what can the righteous do? This has probably had many fulfillments throughout history, but it is a fulfillment right now that is pertinent to us. And it says then, the eternal is in his holy temple, the eternal throne is in heaven, his eyes behold, his eyelids try, the children of men. We've often said, well, God's still on his throne. Remember that expression from Worldwide Days, and Mr. Armstrong used it? Here it is. What can the righteous do? Well, God is still on his throne. The eternal tries the righteous, but the wicked and him that loves violence his soul hates. So we, as part of the tabernacle of God, part of that foundational doctrinal and organizational worldwide church of God that we all were a part of, that is being destroyed. But what is God doing? He's trying the righteous. He's testing. He's checking. Find comfort in that, that he is looking to see who is upright and who is not upright. He's checking the temple or the tabernacle, his people over right now. So this is, in many respects, I think, a prophetic passage, as, as is really the whole book of Psalms, prophecy. But it is principles that could have been applied in many, many generations, and the, the last application is here upon us right now because the foundation is being destroyed, and the foundation of that which is about to be laid will never be destroyed. It will carry through into the kingdom of God. And those who are a part of it will also carry through into the kingdom of God if they maintain to the very end. Verse 6, Upon the wicked he shall rain snares, fire, and brimstone. Reminds you of some of the prophecies of things to come. This shall be the portion of their cup, for the righteous Lord loves righteousness. His countenance does behold the upright. Now he's turned his face from the church, as we've seen in many scriptures in Isaiah and various other places, but his countenance does behold the upright. He will turn his face to those who are upright. A lot of encouragement in here in Psalm 11. And verse 12 carries the thought. Help eternal, for the godly man ceases, for the faithful fail from among the children of men. And right now, the church, the congregation of God, I don't mean this congregation, church is really a pretty bad word when you look into it, and I'm trying to substitute congregation or assembly wherever I can. 
Uh, it's just better. But I don't have time to go into all that at the moment. But uh, Faithful men are failing. They're going away. Verse 3 of chapter 14. They are all gone aside. They are all together become filthy. There is none that does good. No, not one. We all slumbered and slept to emphasize that. But there is none righteous. And we have to become that. Have all the workers of iniquity no knowledge who eat up my people as they eat up bread and call not upon the eternal? Reminds me of Ezekiel 34 and Jeremiah 23 where the pastors and the, the prophets and whoever in office eat the people up, abuse the sheep, dirty the mud, the water, and so on. It fits very well with what's going on right now. Then he says, Oh, that the salvation, verse 7, of Israel were come out of Zion when the Eternal turns back the captivity of his people. Jacob shall rejoice, and Israel shall be glad. And we are in a form of captivity right now, held in the clutches of this world. Now, that is a captivity as surely as making bricks in an Egyptian slave pit was captivity. Harder to recognize this captivity sometimes, perhaps. When you're a slave making bricks, you know you're a slave. But here sometimes we go by not realizing how much we're enslaved to the system around us. Then he says, Eternal, who shall abide in your tabernacle? Who shall dwell in your holy hill? God's tabernacle will be dwelt in. But who is going to be there? And we read that. He that walks uprightly and works righteousness and speaks the truth in his heart. He that backbites not with his tongue, nor does evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his neighbor. So, uh, righteousness before God is so important, but so is our relationship with man, which the last six commandments have to do with man. And if we are backbiting and talking against one another, uh, what are we, basically? I, I found a word for someone who backbites. Cowards. Cowards. We're afraid to talk to that person face to face, so we go tell our friend and buddy about them. And sometimes we realize that a month later or two months later, if not two minutes later, that will get back to the person we talked about. But you see, we can sort of uh, isolate ourselves from that because that's something that's going to happen later. But a confrontation is right now a chance to say to our brother what we think is wrong and get their feedback. And some of it might be you have a wrong attitude. Who knows? What the, how they will react. But the idea is to gain that brother, not talk about that brother behind his back, and point out the faults of someone else uh, to our friend, the one we confide in. Those who don't do that, who fess up and get rid of their yellow streak and are willing to come and gain their brother face to face, will be in God's tabernacle. He that put not, puts not out his money to usury nor takes reward against the innocent, takes advantage of people, in other words. He that does these things shall never be moved. Remember Paul said in Hebrews, only the things that will remain are those which cannot be removed. So this has an application 
that Paul may have picked up on and quoted in Hebrews right from Psalm 15:5. All right, we've touched on some things here about the foundations being destroyed and what can the righteous do. And it's answered, really, in chapter 15. But let's go on back to Isaiah now. And I want to, to run this thread about the tabernacle on through the Scriptures. And it's mentioned prominently in Isaiah and Jeremiah. Now, if you'll recall, Isaiah opens here talking about Israel as a people, as a nation. But there's also an application to the, to the uh, congregation today. Verse 8, And the daughter of Zion, this is Isaiah 1, is left as a cottage in a vineyard, as a lodge in a garden of cucumbers, as a besieged city. And I, would, I think we have to admit that the church is under siege today. Uh, under siege from Satan, under siege from each other, under siege to some degree from those without who are throwing rocks, uh, and will become greatly under siege through persecution from the world shortly hereafter. So the analogy here certainly fits God's people today. He jumps on uh, the Jews for their handling of new moons and Sabbaths in verse 13. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They are a trouble to me. I am weary to bear them, he says. And since we were following the Jewish days, God is upset the same way with the church who continues to follow those things. So the analogy again fits not only the Jews, but the spiritual Jews. So it's talking to you and to me and to the rest of the church at large. This is important for us to grasp and to understand that it fits today and it fits us, not just uh, physical Israel out there. Now let's go to chapter 4 of Isaiah. Um, it talks about the daughters of Zion here in chapter 3 and how God is going to tear it apart because all the daughters of Zion are trying to be seen. They're trying to be noticed. They, uh, he uses the analogy of women dressing up in high heels and tinkling with their feet. He mentions uh, the jewelry, the clothing, not the clothing and jewelry are wrong uh, or anything of that nature but it's the attitude and approach with which a woman can attire herself that brings attention to self. And you can do it with things that are wrong. You can do it with things that are right. It's the attitude and the motivation behind them that can be wrong. And we have all the churches now in competition one with another trying to look like the most wonderful, the greatest, and being filled up with pride and haughtiness about how good they are as compared to all those other churches of God out there. And before pride comes a fall. God says not one stone in the temple will be left upon another. And we must be very, very careful. Even though we are very serious and we're working hard at trying to be what we ought to be and falling far short of it, I said, we're not even sure we're a, a pretty fig tree yet, much less whether we're bringing forth fruit. We'll keep working at it and hoping that that occurs. But we don't want to get in competition with anyone else by saying we're better than you or we're more exclusive than you and dressing ourselves up to look as best we can in front of the others because God shows a principle here that he will bring that down. And he says in verse 24 of Isaiah 3, And it shall come to pass, and instead of sweet smell and perfume, there shall be stink, and instead of a girdle, a rent. All the ugly will come out of the girdle. 
and instead of well-set hair, baldness, and instead of a stomacher, a girding of sackcloth, and burning instead of beauty. Your men shall fall by the sword, and your mighty in the war. And certainly, in a spiritual sense, we have tens of thousands falling uh, by the sword and by famine and pestilence spiritually right now. And her gates shall lament and mourn, and she being desolate shall sit upon the ground. That's what is going to happen to spiritual Israel in the same way that it will happen a little later to physical Israel. Now notice chapter 4. This is what I'm leading up to. And in that day, seven women shall take hold of one man. God categorizes uh, all the peoples in the church today in seven broad categories. Those are listed in Revelation 2 and 3 as the seven churches or seven women. Now this may happen on a physical level in physical Israel at some time uh, when men are being killed in war and seven women then would look to one man. But in a spiritual analogy, it's going to come to the point that all seven of the women, all seven of the churches of Revelation are going to look to one man saying, We will eat our own bread and wear our own apparel, only let us be called by your name to take away our reproach, because they are going to be destroyed. And that day shall the branch of the eternal be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the earth shall be excellent and, is, and comely for them that are escaped of Israel. We are in a great tribulation spiritually right now. Is there anyone in the church anywhere that is unaware of that? I doubt it. It should be obvious to all by now that we are in a great spiritual tribulation. And few are going to escape. A small remnant will be gathered together at the end under one man, the type of Moses, as we have seen over and over in Haggai, Zechariah, and other places. And it shall come to pass that he that is left in Zion, he who manages to stay alive spiritually, and he that remains in Jerusalem, both those words being code words for the congregation of God today, shall be called holy, even every one that is written among the living in Jerusalem. So the unholy will be purged. God says he'll, in Ezekiel 20 that he will purge the rebels from among us. So only that which is holy will remain. Remember how we talked about the tabernacle being a holy thing? And the deeper you got into it, the holier it became until you entered the holy of holies. Verse 4. When the Eternal shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion, not just one, but all the churches, wash the people in it, and some will fail, and some will be washed, and be clean, and be holy, and shall have purged the blood of Jerusalem from the midst thereof by the spirit of judgment and by the spirit of burning. So God has brought judgment on the churches, and we have burning, just like a forest fire, and people are falling like trees all about us. And the Eternal will create upon every dwelling place of Mount Zion and upon her assemblies a cloud and smoke by day and the shining of a flaming fire by night, for upon all the glory shall be a defense or a covering. And there shall be a tabernacle for a shadow in the daytime from the heat and for a place of refuge and for a covert from storm and from rain. This isn't millennial. You won't need protection from the heat then. You won't need protection from storm and rain because everything will be millennial or Edenic at that particular time. So it's talking about a time before that and you can tie Zechariah 2 in very closely with this which is the time of the two witnesses and the rebuilding of the remnant church at the end time and there he says he will be a wall of fire about his people. 
those who have managed to survive spiritually and who have become holy so that they fit in the tabernacle of God. So this is something that is future, something in the very near future, I think, within the next few years, that God is going to do. And then he gives, in chapter 5, a scripture, scripture we've covered many times, another analogy of the vineyard, uh, which is a bit of, of his church, according to John 14, 15, 16, 17, where Christ uses that analogy to talk about the church uh, and how he's going to just tear it apart because it produced the wrong kinds of grapes. So, obviously, the tabernacle, the temple, has been built wrong. There are some things about it that were not right. And a lot of it did not have to do with doctrine so much as it did attitude and approach. If you read Revelation 3 about the Laodicean church, he doesn't say a great deal there about doctrine being wrong. What he talks about is attitude being wrong of those who think that they are rich and increased with goods. Or in modern parlance, we're okay. We're doing what we ought to be doing. We're pretty good. We would never of ourselves say, I'm rich and increased with goods and I have need of nothing, would we? I mean, that's condemned in the Bible, so you wouldn't use that phrase. So we handily use something else to describe the same condition. But I'm okay, you're a dink. Now, let's go to Jeremiah 10. I never thought years ago that I would ever use Jeremiah 10 where it describes Christmas and the Christmas tree uh, in relationship to the Church of God. Because we didn't keep Christmas, did we? But now we find that many, many people that are in the Church of God today keep Christmas. So Jeremiah 10 is a prophecy for today. And not only with the Methodists and Baptists out there, but for the Church of God, if you can believe it. Many, many of them are going back to that. I don't want to spend time on that, but I want to go down to verse 20. Well, let's see. Let's go back to uh, verse 17. Gather up your wares out of the land, O inhabitant of the fortress. Or uh, the King James says, you who are under siege. Gather up your wares out of the land, you who are under siege. And didn't we see before that the church is under siege, spiritually speaking, today? For thus says the Eternal, Behold, I will sling out the inhabitants of the land at this once, and I will distress them that they may find it so. So he warns those who are paying any attention to God to gather up their goodies and get out and away from that which is here, because he's going to sling out the inhabitants of the land. Speaking of physical Israel, they'll be slung out. And we, if we are a part of them, will be partakers of her plagues. That Revelation 18. Come out of her, my people, that you be not partakers of her plagues. This is talking about the same scenario. Woe is me for my hurt. My wound is grievous. But I said, truly, this is a grief, and I must bear it. We've got this grief upon us. But brethren, we must bear it. We must handle it. We must deal with it. My tabernacle is spoiled, and all my cords are broken. God's tabernacle today is spoiled. 
the cords that bound it to him are broken. The relationship is essentially broken. My children are gone forth of me. They're going back to worshiping Christmas trees and Easter bunnies. They're going back to a lot of things they used to believe. And they are not. There is none to stretch forth my tent anymore and to set up my curtains. That's a reference to the tabernacle, the portable tabernacle in the wilderness. There's no one to set up the tent anymore. They've all abandoned it. They've all abandoned that which was good and built on a perfect pattern and was right and gone after other things. For the pastors are become brutish and have not sought the eternal. Therefore they shall not prosper and all their flocks shall be scattered. We like to refer to this verse and those in Ezekiel 34 and 23, or in Jeremiah 23, to church ministers today, whereas used to we thought of them as only the Methodists and the Baptists. But now we recognize that ministers in the true congregations of God have done the same thing. Why is it that some people cannot see the analogy between the church and all these prophecies and can only see physical Israel here, and yet they'll go to a few choice ones that they like and apply those to the church? Why not all of it? Because the parallels and analogies are there throughout. Behold, the noise of the brute is come, or the beast, and a great commotion out of the north country to make the cities of Judah desolate and a den of dragons. It's already happened and is happening to the church, and it will very quickly now to the nations on a physical level. O eternal, I know that the way of man is not in himself. It is not in man that walks to direct his steps. We haven't known what to do when the foundation is broken. It hasn't been within the church to know how to direct its steps. And people have walked off in all kinds of different directions. Well, here's what we need to do, verse 24. We need to pray to God. O Eternal, correct me, but with judgment. Not in your anger, lest you bring me to nothing. Because what do we have to stand on? We too slumbered and slept. We too have not been what we ought to be. So we need to pray to God to correct, to guide, to lead our steps. But please do it in mercy. Get us straightened out, but don't... Kill us as you straighten us. You know, if you got a crooked back, you want it straightened, but you hate to go to a chiropractor because you know he's going to hurt you. And, and we want our back and our steps to be straight, but we don't want hurt too much in the process. Pour out your fury upon the heathen that know you not, and upon the families that call not on your name. Take it easy on me, says, be rough on them. <laughs> Perhaps a bit selfish an approach here, but. At the same time, there's a certain amount of, of truth there. You know, put it on the wicked. We're trying to do right. Correct us so we won't be wicked, and we don't have to have that, really, is the force of it. So let's go then to Lamentations. I'm just sort of going through here uh, in order. Book of Lamentations. Here I want chapter 2. I know it's sandwiched in here somewhere. Here it is. Now, a lot of people have blamed what has happened to the tabernacle or temple. Uh, I've, I've stayed with tabernacle so far. We'll get to temple a little later on, but I want to chase the tabernacle all the way through here first. And he uses that here in Lamentations 2. How has the Eternal covered the daughter of Zion with a cloud in his anger? and cast down from heaven unto the earth the beauty of Israel, and remembered not his footstool in the day of his anger. 
If there's any part of Israel that has been the beauty, it is the daughters of Zion, or that is God's church, God's people. The Eternal has swallowed up all the habitations of Jacob and has not pitied. He has thrown down in his wrath the strongholds of the daughter of Judah. He has brought them down to the ground. He has polluted the kingdom and the princes thereof. Leaders of the church have been polluted and are being destroyed one by one. He has cut off in his fierce anger all the horn of Israel. He has drawn back his right hand from before the enemy, uh, and he has allowed the enemy to come in, in other words. And he burned against Jacob like a flaming fire which devoured round about. In other words, we deserve the Tkachas. Sorry to say, but we did. We deserve them. We were, had become proud and arrogant spiritually and thought we were doing fine or rich and increased with goods. And we had it made into God's kingdom if we just stayed in the church. The temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, as Jeremiah puts it. But God was unhappy with us. And he allowed the Tkachas to be brought in to destroy. All of it does not go on their back. A lot of it goes on our back for what we had become. Uh, verse 5, the Lord was as an enemy. He has swallowed up Israel. Israel is a code word again for the church. He has swallowed up all her palaces. He has destroyed his strongholds and has increased in the daughter of Judah mourning and lamentation. Yes, this is coming on physical Israel soon but it is already upon us. He has violently taken away his tabernacle, as if it were of a garden. You remember he uses the garden and the grapes in Isaiah 5. Here he calls it a tabernacle and says he's taken it away. And now there's no one to set up the tent anymore. He has destroyed his places of the assembly. How many feast sites have gone by the boards? How many local congregations have disappeared? The Eternal has caused the solemn feasts and Sabbaths to be forgotten in Zion. How quickly so many have forgotten the weekly Sabbath and gone back to Sunday. How many have left the solemn moeds and feasts. And as despised in the indignation of his anger, the king and the priest, the ministry has been despised. And the flocks are still being taken away. And that will continue because there has not been repentance throughout the congregations of God. We have knowledge of this. And knowledge requires action. We can do something about it. And it can't start with someone else. It has to start with us. The Eternal has cast off his altar. I mean, is this referring to physical Israel? Not first and foremost. What is the altar of God? It has to do with his people. He has abhorred his sanctuary. He has given up into the hand of the enemy the walls of her palaces. They have made a noise in the house of the Eternal as in the day of a solemn feast. The Eternal is purposed to destroy the wall of the daughter of Zion. Remember Isaiah 58, which talks about healing the breaches in the wall if we will humble ourselves and repent and, and get rid of the evil within ourselves. Verse 9, her gates are sunk into the ground. He has destroyed and broken her bars. Her king and her princes are among the Gentiles. The law is no more. Her prophets also find no vision from the Eternal. The ministry doesn't know what's going on anymore. They're still trying to do Herbert Armstrong's work, and he finished it and died. They don't realize what God is doing. They don't understand that God is destroying the congregations. Now, let's see. I guess that's about all I really wanted back here. I mean, this could go on and on. Uh, 
verse 13, for instance, the last part says, O virgin daughter of Zion, your breach is great. Who can heal you? Your breach is great like the sea. The sea's pretty wide. That's pretty big holes in the church, isn't it? Let's go to Amos 5. Amos 5. Now this will be carried forward in the New Testament. We're going to see it in a little bit, but I want you to understand that it applies to what is going on in the congregations of God today. Amos 5, verse 20. Shall not the day of the eternal be darkness? So the day of the Lord is coming soon, and not light, even very dark, and no brightness in it. Well, he says, right before us is the day of the Lord. So this is a prophecy for today, more than it has ever applied. Joel applied some things that happened, I mean, Peter did, applied some of the things that happened on Pentecost in probably 30 A.D. to things that were in Joel. And certainly, I think they were a type, but they were not the end-time fulfillment, which is going to be an even greater fulfillment than that which happened with the disciples on the day of Pentecost in 30 A.D. or 31 A.D., I think probably 30, though no one can really truly prove which it was, so be that as it may. But we're almost upon that time, is the point I want to make. Now, verse 21, I hate, I despise your feast days, and I will not sniff, can't stand the smell of, your solemn assemblies. Though you offer me burnt offerings and your meat offerings, I will not accept them, neither will I regard the peace offerings of your fat beasts. Take you away from me the noise of your songs, for I will not hear the melody of your vials. But let judgment run down as waters and righteousness as a mighty stream. Going to feast days on wrong days and going in places where God is not, that is in the middle of Babylon and its cities, is not what God wants. What he really wants is righteousness. But notice verse 26. Well, verse 25, let's go on down. Have you offered to me sacrifices and offerings in the wilderness forty years, O house of Israel? But you have borne the tabernacle of your Moloch and Sheun, your images, the star of your God, which you made to yourselves. Wrong tabernacles. Instead of the tabernacle of God in which he would dwell, we have made wrong tabernacles. Now, does God want us dwelling in wrong tabernacles, keeping things we should not keep at the wrong times and in the wrong ways, going after other gods? No. He condemns that very strongly here, saying, if you make wrong tabernacles, you're going to be in serious trouble. Now let's go to Acts 7. Well, before I, I want one more thought in here. We've built wrong tabernacles, but remember the song we sing out of the hymnal? Unless the Lord shall build the house, the weary builders toil in vain. Unless God is in it, unless he's God is working through you and me to build and be a part of his tabernacle, we're putting forth a lot of effort for nothing. If we're doing it on our own, it means nothing, and it will all be destroyed, because it will be shaken. We had better be sure God is in whatever we are doing. And to be sure of that, we have to pray diligently under our fig tree, and we have to read his word to be sure we are fulfilling his words. Because these words are the pattern of the tabernacle or the temple that is to be built spiritually. To live by every word of God. 
I am not going to tell you that you need to pray 30 minutes a day, that you need to read your Bible 30 minutes a day, by rote, is, which is what happened years ago in Worldwide. I am telling you to spend as much time as you can praying that God guide our steps, praying that he direct and correct them in mercy, and reading this book to find out how to build a temple. This book is the pattern on how to build a temple or a tabernacle to God. That's why it's important we read it, not just to sound spiritual because we read the Bible for 30 minutes an hour a day. We need to find what the book says so we can apply it in our lives. If we don't do that, we're building in vain. God is not in the reading of Psalms that we might feel better. I mean, yes, there's a lot of encouragement and inspiration there, yes, and there are times to read the Psalms to make ourselves feel better. But the point I'm trying to get to is this is an instruction book on how to live. And that's why we need our head in it, so that we can build in a way that he will be in. Because if he doesn't build a house, it means nothing. We're just wasting our time and energy. We might as well eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. I like to eat, drink, and be merry. <laughs> it's fun. It's easier to ignore God. Some people who left the church years ago says, boy, I never had such a relief as the day I walked out of church. Sure, it's a relief. You don't have trials, troubles, and tribulations. You don't have to fight your carnal nature. You don't have to work against sin. You can just skip through life and ignore God for a while. <laughs> but you'll pay someday. Paul said something about the temporary pleasures of sin, didn't he? Sin's fun, brethren. Sin's easy. Do you ever notice how easy it is to sin? I'm sure you haven't noticed that. It's easy to sin. It comes natural. It's like falling off a log. I can walk out of here and just sin all I want. It'd be easy. I've never had any trouble sinning. My problem is not sin. So, yeah, leave the church. Makes it easy. Now I can sin. I can do anything I want. But there's a penalty. There's a penalty. And if you go out there and sin long enough, you'll find out there's a penalty. Broken marriages, upside-down lives, poverty, uh, mental problems, depressions. Yeah, it's fun for a while. But then you have to pay the piper. All right, let's go to Acts 7. Acts 7. Now here is an incredible sermon that Philip gave, or Stephen gave, excuse me. Not only mix my metaphors, I mix my people sometimes. But this passage will show us before we're done that Amos is not just a millennial setting speaking of physical Israel. Because here, oh, this is James, I'm sorry. Stephen's later on. I'll get it straight. Give me enough time. Uh, here, James is making a pronouncement about circumcision. And it's interesting that he uses Amos as his authority for the New Testament church. He applies it to the church, not just to physical Israel. Well, let's pick it up here. Uh, oh, about verse 22. Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in words and in deeds. 
And when he was full forty years old, it came into his heart to visit his brethren, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them suffering wrong, he defended himself. This is Stephen. Like I said, give me time. Give me time. That 15 is, is James. We'll, we'll get there. Don't give up. Um, he defended his fellow Egyptian, or fellow Israelite. Oh, boy. And avenged him that, that was oppressed and smote the Egyptian, for he supposed his brethren would have understood how that God by his hand would deliver them, but they understood not. He thought, you know, I'm here to help you, and he thought that they would grasp that, but they missed it. They couldn't see it. And they condemned him even. And the next day he showed himself to them as they strove and would have set them at one again, saying, Sirs, you are brethren. Why do you wrong one to another? But he that did his neighbor wrong thrust him away, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Who, who sent you here to solve this problem? Will you kill me as you did the Egyptian yesterday? Then fled Moses at this saying, was a stranger in the land of Midian, where he begat two sons. He's laying some background here. See, he's talking to the leaders of the Jews of that day. And he is going to zing them before this is done. He's laying a background here. And when forty years, verse 30, were expired, there appeared to him in the wilderness of Sinai an angel of the eternal and a flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he wondered at the sight. Now he's reviewing things that these people were familiar with, see? He's showing them, Don't, you know this, you've, you've read this story, you've rehearsed this story, you know what Moses did. Okay? They're with him now. They're listening. They're just listening to a history story, one that they themselves used. He's using an awful lot of tact and diplomacy in this sermon to get them listening before he delivers the brick. So, Moses saw it, he wondered at the sight, verse 31, and as he drew near to behold it, the voice of the Eternal came to him, saying, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Then Moses trembled, and durst not behold. He was scared half to death, and didn't look up. Then said the Eternal to him, Put off your shoes from your feet, for the place where you stand is holy ground. See, they're, they're being taken in by this story, because they know it. And they, they're, they're standing there and their buttons are just getting tighter and tighter as they swell up in pride about their forefathers. See what Stephen's doing? I have seen, I have seen the affliction of my people which is in Egypt, and I have heard their groaning and come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you into Egypt. This Moses whom they refused, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? The same did God send to be a ruler and a deliverer by the hand of the angel which appeared to him in the bush. And the Jews said, yeah, yeah, that happened. He brought them out. After that, he had showed wonders and signs in the land of Egypt and in the Red Sea and in the wilderness forty years. This is that Moses which said to the children of Israel, A prophet shall the eternal your God raise up to you of your brethren like to me. Him shall you hear. This is he that was in the church in the wilderness with the angel which spoke to him in the Mount of Sinai and with our fathers who delivered the lively oracles to give to us. He begins to introduce Christ that Moses was a type of. And this they would not like. To whom our fathers would not obey, but thrust him from them, and in their hearts turned back again to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make us gods to go before us. For as for this Moses which brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what's become of him. So they made a calf in those days and offered sacrifice to the idol. Now that came into the congregation of God right in front of the tabernacle of God. 
This did not make God happy. Then God turned, verse 42, and gave them up to worship the host of heaven, that is, the demons. And as it is written in the book of the prophets, O you house of Israel, have you offered to me slain beasts and sacrifices by the safe space of forty years in the wilderness? Yes, you took up the tabernacle of Moloch and the star of your god Rimphan. We just read that in Amos. Wrong tabernacles, wrong gods. And I will carry you away beyond Babylon. Our fathers had the tabernacle of witness in the wilderness, as he had appointed, speaking to Moses that he should make it according to the fashion or the pattern that he had seen. You see, what we've been reading the last two weeks is going to become very, very prominent and important to the New Testament church or congregation or assembly. But it had to be made according to that pattern. Which also our fathers that came after brought in with Joshua into the possession of the Gentiles, whom God drove out before the face of our fathers to the days of David. Instead of Jesus there in the King James, it should be Joshua, because he is the one that led the men and brought the tabernacle across the Jordan River. Of course, Jesus Christ was guiding and leading it, but Joshua was the one who actually walked across the river with it. Who found favor before God and desired to find a tabernacle for the God of Jacob. But Solomon built him a house. So instead of a portable tabernacle, Solomon built what was supposed to be a permanent temple. Didn't turn out to be too permanent, did it? Now, he starts turning the, the knife in them. He said, you came forward, you understood about Moses, but you're not understanding something, people. There's a tabernacle to be built, and it's not a tabernacle made with hands. And that's what he goes on to explain. Verse 48, Howbeit the Most High dwells not in temples made with hands, as says the prophet. Heaven is my throne, and earth is my footstool. What house will you build me, says the Eternal? Or what is the place of my rest? They looked to the temple, the temple, Herod's temple in this day, when this was being written. Has not my hand made all these things, verse 50? Now listen. You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, you do always resist the Holy Spirit, as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets have not your fathers persecuted? If you're a prophet of God, I'll guarantee you, you're going to get persecuted. And they have slain them which showed before of the coming of the just one, speaking of Christ, of whom you have been now the betrayers and murderers. Yes, you had that physical tabernacle back there and you offered beasts, but you've refused the tabernacle that is being built in the hearts and minds of men, the New Testament temple that had been established and that they were denying. And they were denying the high priest of that temple, Jesus Christ himself. So he turns it very quickly against them here. Who have received the law by the disposition of angels and have not kept it. Yeah, you had the law. You didn't keep it. When they heard these things, they were cut to the heart, and they gnashed on him with their teeth. Here's the whole point of Stephen's sermon. You had the law, and you didn't keep it. And you killed the one who came to deliver it again to you. And then they stoned him. Killed him. Another prophet of God goes down. 
Now let's go to Acts 15 and to James and the quote from Amos, which I tried to get to earlier and couldn't. James 15, I mean, <laughs> James 15. I might as well give it up today. Acts 15. We got two Sabbaths in a row. Maybe I'll have a chance to recover. Acts 15. Certain men came down from Judea and taught the brethren and said, Except you be circumcised after the manner of Moses, you cannot be saved. When therefore Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and disputation with, with them, they determined that Paul and Barnabas... So this was a, a big doctrinal uh, problem, uh, whether or not we should circumcise in the New Testament. So they all came together, and there had been much disputing, and Peter rose and talked about it and so on. And uh, then they heard of the miracles of Barnabas and Paul, the miracles and wonders that God had wrought among the Gentiles by them, verse 12. The Gentiles were uncircumcised, but God had done signs and wonders among the Gentiles. So this testimony was brought out that apparently circumcision wasn't really necessary to have God involved, at least physical circumcision. All right, verse 13. And after they had held their peace, James answered and said, Men and brethren, hearken to me. Simeon, or Peter, has declared how God at the first did visit the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. And to this agree the words of the prophets, as it is written, after this I will return and will baptize to the New Testament church. That these prophecies weren't written just for physical Israel. Amos 9, and here I want verse 11. In, the, in that day will I raise up the tabernacle of David that has fallen. People have thought, well, this just refers to the millennium. And close up the breaches thereof, and I will raise up his ruins, and I will build it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and of all the heathen which are called by my name, says the Eternal, it does this. Now, yes, David will be resurrected one day, and this will be fulfilled in the millennium. I have no doubt of that. But there are other fulfillments which come first. That's the point I've been trying to make throughout all the Minor Prophets series and many of the sermons I've given over the last six and a half years. But there is an application to today. Now let's see that proved here. Because James refers to this, these two verses right here. And he is talking to whom? The New Testament congregation. And to this agree the words of the prophets, as it is written, after this I will return and will build again the tabernacle of David. James is saying that the New Testament congregation or church was the tabernacle of David. That's the point he's making. I will build again the ruins thereof, and I will set it up, that the residue of men might seek after the Eternal, and all the Gentiles upon whom my name is called, says the Eternal, who does all these things. Known unto God are all his works from the beginning of the world. Wherefore my sentence is that we trouble not them which from among the Gentiles are turned to God, but that we write unto them that they abstain from pollution of idols, fornication, and things strangled and for blood, and so on. So he applies what Amos wrote about David to the New Testament church. It applies today. We have breaches in the tabernacle of David today that need to be healed, that need to be fixed, that need to be resolved. And if we do right, we can be healers of the breaches as Isaiah 58 clearly shows us. All right, let's go to 2 Corinthians 5 for a moment. I want to hustle along here and finish uh, this section today so I can get into something else tomorrow. 
2 Corinthians 5, and here I want to begin in verse 1. For we know that if our earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved, we have a building of God, and house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Remember what Stephen said about a house not made with hands? If this tabernacle, this human body, is to die, there is a future. That's the beauty of this. Now, you can seek the temporary pleasures of sin for a while, and you have your reward. You enjoyed sinning, and it's all over for you. But if you choose to do things right and live by every word of God, you have an eternal inheritance, not just some fun and games on this life, and then you're dead and gone. It's a strange thing that after you have sinned a while, after you have departed from God for a long time, you begin to get frustrated with life anyway, and you could care less whether you live forever. Because life is not much fun anymore. Sin brings penalties and ultimately frustration and misery. But if we live God's way, and we find the joy in His Spirit, then we'll want to live forever. won't want to die. It's the fighting our human nature that makes us not want to live much longer. And I want my nature changed. I want to alter it as much as I can today and get away from it and pray that my change come. So anyway, we have an earthly house or a building of this earthly house, this body, but we have a building not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed upon with our house which is from heaven. That is our goal and desire today. That's what you and I are here about. The rest of the world is doing their thing today, and we're doing God's thing. We want to live eternally, and we want to be clothed with that house which is from heaven, that heavenly Jerusalem that is to come down to us. If so be that being clothed, we shall not be found naked, for we that are in this tabernacle do groan. Remember, we talked about the tabernacle being a portable building, and we, as individual tabernacles of God's Spirit, are pretty portable and we die pretty easily, pretty temporary. So we groan, being burdened, not for that we would be unclothed. We don't want to lose what we've got and stand here naked, but clothed upon, that mortality might be swallowed up of life. We want something more, something the world has not been offered, as yet at least. Now he that has wrought us for the selfsame thing is God who also has given to us the earnest of the Spirit. Now, just as we have a physical tabernacle here that is incomplete and not yet fully formed in the pattern of the way God wants us to live, uh, we also have the earnest of the Spirit. We have enough of God's Spirit that we can begin to slowly produce the fruit of His Spirit, the love, the joy, the peace, the patience, and so on. But we don't have it in fullness until we are changed then we have the Spirit of God, not just an earnest of it or a down payment. An earnest money on a house that you buy is just a small amount that you put down to show that you're serious about buying the house. God gives us just enough of His Spirit today as an earnest to show that He seriously intends to buy this house that we are building, His tabernacle, His temple. And he is going to give us the fullness of the Spirit someday. But right now we just have the earnest, the, the, the small part. Not even the down payment. An earnest is just 500 or $2,000 you put down to show you're serious. Then when that's accepted, you put down a down payment on a house or you pay it off. 
Some people pay it off. Most of us do not. Therefore, we are always confident, knowing that while we're at home in the body, I mean, we're here living in this physical temple, physical tabernacle, we are absent from the eternal. He has not dwelt in us fully as yet. For we walk by faith and trust, not by sight. Sometimes it's hard to know where we're going, but we're walking by trust, not by sight. We cannot see completely those things which are ahead of us. Paul said we see through a glass darkly. We can't fully see it, so we're walking in trust. And, and that helps me get my perspective sometimes. What does he say there in Romans 1? That we see God by the things that he created. And so often I go out and I look at the, the pine trees and the stars and the blue sky and, and the grass and, and the things that God has made. And by those, I can trust that whoever made that must be all right. He must be okay if he can make these things that are so beautiful to me. And therefore, I can trust and keep walking, even though I cannot see that which is to come. I see a glimmer of it, an earnest of it, in the creation that we have around us. And I know this thing could not have evolved. It didn't simply just come here. This microphone, this suit, did not just sort of appear they had to be made by someone. And when I look at this universe, it had to be made by someone. Therefore, I can trust and walk forward that whoever made this, if he could do this, hey, buddy, he can fix me too. And that gives me courage to walk forward and know that even though I can't see God, I can see what he's done. And I know that he's an all right guy. Not that I'm trying to put him on our level as an all right guy, but you follow my meaning there. He's far, far above us. But he has to be okay if he's done this. For we must all appear, verse 10, before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he has done, whether it be good or bad. And I'll pick up one more verse here, verse 17, for sake of time. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. So even as Revelation talks about all things be, being made new, we also are being made new. We're not fully made new yet, but he speaks of it as if it's already done. A new creation. The old man is left behind, and we're leading a new life with different ideas and thoughts. Now let's go to Hebrews 8. And Paul really brings this whole concept that I've been talking about into uh, perspective here. Hebrews 8. Now, he's been talking about Jesus Christ. He's been talking about uh, our high priest that is in the heavens, without father, without mother, descent, or beginning of days, and so on. And talking about the New Testament congregation. So in chapter 8, he begins to summarize. Now, of the things which we have spoken, this is the sum. I'll sum it all up for you. We have such an high priest who is set on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, which the eternal pitched and not man. God pitched a, a tabernacle of absolutely perfect pattern, built according to his pattern with nothing but quality materials and done in an exact fashion, as we saw back in Leviticus and Numbers and Exodus and so on. So that was the true tabernacle, as opposed to the tabernacles of Moloch and Cheun and so on that we read about in uh, Amos, I guess it was. 
For every high priest is ordained to offer gifts and sacrifices, whereof it is of necessity that this man have somewhat also to offer. For if he were on earth, he should not be a priest, seeing that there are priests that offer gifts according to the law. I mean, all he would have been done was doing was repeating what had been done in the past. He had something else that he had to offer. Who served to the example and shadow of heavenly things. Now those things we read about back there in the building of that tabernacle of witness in the wilderness were shadows of things that were to come later. Things that Christ himself would bring. So the lessons that we learned back there about the finite detail and the quality of the materials and how it was looked after, how it was taken care of, how it was transported, all of those things were looking forward to something that would come later. They were a shadow of heavenly things. As Moses was admonished of God when he was about to make the tabernacle, for, see, says he, that you make all things according to the pattern showed to you in the mount. He's talking to the New Testament congregation of Jews here and telling them that they were to make everything according to a pattern. And as I said before, we live by every word of God. This is the complete pattern. And boy, had we better know the pattern if we're going to come up with anything that looks like what God wants built. Does this make sense? Got to follow the pattern. But now has he obtained a more excellent ministry by how much also he is the mediator of a better covenant which was established upon better promises. Remember Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28? And now we have the blessings and the cursings and he gave them certain promises. I'll give you uh, wealth. I'll give you uh, peace. I'll give you freedom from diseases and so on and so forth if you obey me. If not, I'll lay the curses upon you. We have been offered eternal life as a better covenant. But you know what else we've been offered? Eternal death if we don't follow through and build according to the pattern. They were offered physical life and death, physical blessing and cursing. We have been offered spiritual and eternal blessing or cursing. Choose you this day. For if that first covenant had been faultless, then should no place have been sought for the second. For finding fault with them, it was, there wasn't anything wrong with the covenant. It was limited in what it offered, but there was nothing wrong with it. Had they followed it, they would have had blessings. But they didn't, and they received cursing. For finding fault with them, because they didn't follow it, he says, Behold, the days come, says the Eternal, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they continued not in my covenant, and I regarded them not, says the Eternal. Now, he has only offered that covenant to a few of Israel today, a few out of Israel and Judah. That is, those who have become spiritual Jews, Jew and Gentile alike. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Eternal. I will put my laws into their mind and write them in their hearts, not on their doorpost, but in their hearts. Having it written on the doorpost is fine, but that isn't the point. That isn't the goal. The goal, really, is to write them in the heart. And then, when you go outside your door, they're still there. They're with you eternally in your heart. And I will be to them a God, and they shall be to me a people. We are a very, very uh, blessed and select few who have been offered that covenant now. It will not be offered to most of Israel and Judah until the millennium or the great white throne judgment. 
but has been offered to a few. And these Hebrews that he was writing to were a few of those that had been offered to. And they shall not teach every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me from the least to the greatest. Now we are beginning to know God now, aren't we? We have been get shown incredible mercy and favor, you and I, to understand these things today. The stakes are pretty high. It's either the kingdom of God or death, eternally. But we've also been offered a higher office as a bride of Christ, to be a part of the 144,000. A very, very select few out of all the 60 billion that have lived on this earth. So I hope we never lose sight. You know, as we go through trials, troubles, and tribulations on this earth and in this church, and a few growing pains that we may be suffering here as a little group of people seeking God, we can sometimes get zeroed in on our problems as opposed to the vision and the goal of where we're headed. And that's a tragedy when that happens, brethren. Truly a tragedy when we focus on our problem or someone else's problem and forget where we're headed. We, we can't see the forest for the trees. I speak to the wise. Very, very few have been given the opportunity you and I have been given. That's why the old covenant has not completely gone away. See, it's, it's as he said, it's getting old as a garment and is being obsoleted. It is going to go away. But it has to stay around for most of physical Israel so that God has it as his reason and his legal opportunity to punish for the breaking of that covenant. Physical Israel today is about to be judged for the breaking of that physical covenant that they made with God all those years ago. And he has every right to destroy them physically for not following that covenant. And he has only offered the new to a very few today to give them an opportunity ahead of time as spiritual Israel to have eternal life in the very near future. That's why it's about to vanish away, but has not. It will be used to judge physical Israel. We will be judged by the terms of the new covenant. And we will be either given eternal life or eternal death. For I will be merciful, verse 12, to their unrighteousness and their sins and their iniquities while I remember no more. And that he says, a new covenant, he has made the first old. Now that which decays and waxes old is ready to vanish away. It hasn't gone yet, as I just said. <laughs> All right, let's go on. He gets back into the tabernacle here. Then truly the first covenant had also ordinances of divine service and a worldly sanctuary, for there was a tabernacle made. The first wherein was the candlestick and the table and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary, and after the second veil, the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all. You could dwell on the outside, partway on the inside, but the holiest of all was right in the middle. Which had the golden censer and the Ark of the Covenant overlaid round about with gold. Now he's speaking to people of Hebrew or Jewish background here. So he goes through the detail of this for a purpose. And, and he goes on to describes the golden pot that had manna and Aaron's rod that budded and the tables of the covenant and over it the cherubims of glory shadowing the mercy seat of which we cannot now speak particularly. We don't understand or remember or have recorded for us the detail of how those were made. 
Now when these things were thus ordained, the priests went always into the first tabernacle, accomplishing the service of God. But into the second went the high priest alone, once every year, not without blood. He gave sacrifices, in other words, ahead of time, and for the errors of the people. The Holy Spirit, this signifying that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest, while as the first tabernacle was yet standing. Remember the verse that says that the prophets of old desired to look into these things and could not see them? Well, what God is revealing to us could not be understood when they had that physical tabernacle. They were dealing with a physical covenant only. So while it was there, they couldn't understand. Which was a figure or form for the time then present in which were offered both gifts and sacrifices that could not make him that did the service perfect as pertaining to the conscience. All sin could not be wiped away. Maybe a sin could be removed in a physical level but the conscience could not be dealt with until we had the Holy Spirit, which stood only in meats and drinks and different washings and carnal ordinances imposed upon them until the time of Reformation. Christ came and reformed things. He gave us opportunity at a better tabernacle. But Christ being come and high priest, I say these things, then I go on and he says it right in the context. Christ being come an high priest of good things to come by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building, not of the same building as the old one. This is made of the mind and the heart and the spirit, not of physical figures. It has to be done in the same fashion, with the same attention to detail, with the same following of the pattern that is written down here. If we're going to build a spiritual tabernacle, we have to be just as careful as they were with that physical tabernacle. See, this is the whole point I've been driving at all the way through here. Verse 12, Neither by the blood of coats and calves, but by his own blood he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. He doesn't have to go in and do this every year like Aaron did. He did it once for all time, redeeming us forever his sacrifice applying for as long as there is sin. Eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls and of goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? You can unhitch the trailer of the past. And your conscience can be clean before God only through the blood of Christ. The blood of bulls and goats could not accomplish this. They might remove a physical penalty or plague, but they couldn't clear the conscience of the wrongs of the past, the sins that they had done. We should, by the power of the Spirit of God, be able to, to divorce ourselves completely from anything in our past and walk forward with a clean conscience. The day of Pentecost is tomorrow, the day on which the Holy Spirit of God was first given to dwell in man. When the, this covenant that we're reading about today, this tabernacle, was offered to us. 
and an incredible show of power at the time. Isn't it almost mind-boggling to really grasp that our sins can truly be washed away and we can walk forward without a guilty conscience anymore? Now, brethren, we've got to do this. Some of us have not lived up to this. All of us have not lived up to this. All of us, to one degree or another, have always carried some of our sins of the past on our conscience. We are not to do that. We are to leave it behind. Otherwise, the blood of Christ means nothing, right? And it was all done in vain. All that he went through was done in vain unless we can repent and move forward with a clean conscience that had never been offered before. Verse 15, And for this cause he is a mediator of the New Testament, that by means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the First Testament, they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. There he lays it out in so many words. We can leave the past behind and have an eternal inheritance. For where a testament is, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator, like a will. The will doesn't mean a thing until the person who wrote the will dies. For a testament is of force after men are dead. Otherwise, it is of no strength at all while the testator lives. Whereupon neither the first testament was dedicated without blood. They had sacrifices. For when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and of goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book and all the people. They went through an awful lot of ritual, didn't they? Through an awful lot of thousands of animals dying to try to get them to see the point that if you sin, you have to sacrifice animals. And it was all a shadow and a type of Christ coming and his sacrifice and his blood being shed for all sin and all guilty conscience in our past. It was looking forward to this. It didn't really mean a whole lot to them, but it means an awful lot to us. So, Moses did all these things in verse 19, saying, This is the blood of the testament which God has enjoined to you. Moreover, he sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry. Everything had to be sprinkled with blood. Everything has to come under the blood of Christ today. And almost all things were by the law purged with blood. Almost all things. Couldn't have a clean conscience, though. But almost all things. And without shedding of blood is no remission whatsoever. Blood has to be shed. The penalty of sin is what? Death. Physical sins then had to have the death of animals. Our sins today have to have the blood of Christ. It was therefore necessary that the patterns of things in the heavens should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. See, those things were only a pattern of what will be offered later, and they had to be sprinkled with bull's blood. Now we have a better promise that is to come sprinkled with Christ's blood. Those were only a figure of what is to come. So all that they went through was only something to show what would be given to you and me. Doesn't that make us pretty set apart, sanctified? We have been sanctified by the blood of Christ, set aside for a holy purpose. 
Sanctified simply means set aside or set apart. But when you add holy to it, then you have something important. So these were only figures of something to come, but now unto heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor yet that he should offer himself often as the high priest entered into the holy place every year with blood of others, for then must he often have suffered since the foundation of the world. He had done it every year, because people sin every year since Adam was created. But now once in the end of the world has he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. He has put it away to the point that it will never be mentioned to us again. Our sins will be removed as far as the east is from the west, remember it says. Never again mentioned to us if we come under the blood of Christ. And as it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this the judgment. So Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many, and unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. And then he goes on to talk about uh, some more of this, but I, I think I'll stop with that context there and go to Hebrews 13 and make one point here. Um, he's talking about Christ being the same yesterday, today, and forever in verse 8, and tells us not to be carried about with different and strange doctrines. For it is a good thing that the heart be established with grace, not with foods or meats which have not profited them that have been occupied therein. Now notice this. We have an altar, that is, within a tabernacle, we have an altar whereof they have no right to eat which serve the tabernacle. We have been given something special that those people in the Old Testament who serve that physical tabernacle, that temporary tabernacle, if you will, or portable tabernacle, they simply have no right to it. The physical Jews of that day, the leaders of the Pharisees and Sadducees who are part of the background of Moses, have no right to it. Any of these churches around today in this world have absolutely no right to it. We have an altar which those which serve that tabernacle have no right to eat. For the bodies of those beasts whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin, sin are burned without the camp. Wherefore Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered without the gate. Let us go forth, therefore, to him without the camp, bearing his reproach. For here we have no continuing city, but we seek one to come. We have a right to go to the altar of eternal life. And very few people on this earth have been given that opportunity. Now I'll wrap this up pretty quickly. Let's go to Second Peter 1. Second Peter 1. <clears throat> He talks here about them that have obtained a like precious faith with us, with us through the righteousness of God and our Savior Jesus Christ, writing to people who have been given this opportunity. So that means you and me. And then he talks about some of the things that we are to do to make our calling and election sure, as he says in verse 10, so that we shall never fall. For so an entrance, verse 11, shall be ministered to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. For wherefore, I will not be negligent to put you always in remembrance of these things, though you know them, and be established in the present truth. Repetition is important, he said. Yes, I think it meet, as long as I am in this tabernacle, to stir you up by putting you in remembrance. 
knowing that shortly I must put off this my tabernacle, even as our Lord Jesus Christ has showed me. He knew he was going to die soon, and this physical, temporary, portable tabernacle would be gone. I followed through on tabernacle partly for this reason, and I haven't gotten into temple, because truly we are portable. Truly we are temporary. And this has to be put off. We will die. It is appointed to all men once to do. But we need to be reminded of these things as long as we are in this fleshly tabernacle, that the spiritual is there and must be heavily considered if, this tab if we are to go on beyond this tabernacle. Now, I want to go to Revelation 13 and show how this goes all the way through. <clears throat> Revelation 13. Now, here, this is talking about the beast that rises up at the end and what he does. Verse 5, there was given to him a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies, and power was given to him to continue 42 months. <clears throat> and he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle and them that dwell in heaven. He'll blaspheme God the Father, Jesus Christ, and everyone up there, the angels of God, the 24 elders, all the heavenly righteous beings this beast is going to blaspheme. And it was given to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And power was given him over all kindreds and tongues and nations. So he's given power over the saints of God as well as the peoples of this world who are not part of spiritual Israel. Scary, frightening times is just ahead of us. And all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him whose names are not written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world, and that's us. Everyone will worship the beast, but God's true people. That's how powerful this is going to be. Now let's go to chapter 15 and verse 5. He talks here about the seven last plagues in chapter 15. And after that, verse 5, I looked, and behold, the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven was opened. I think that the tabernacle, the Holy of Holies, has been transported up there. I don't think they're going to find it down here, even though some keep looking for it. I think Scripture tells us it's there. The tabernacle of the testimony in heaven was opened, and the seven angels came out of the temple, having the seven plagues clothed in pure and white linen, and having their breasts girdled with golden girdles. And one of the four beasts gave unto the seven angels seven golden vials full of the wrath of God, who lives forever and ever. And the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power, and no man was able to enter into the temple till the seven plagues of the seven angels were fulfilled. Remember what I said a little bit ago about those people being judged, physical Israel being judged by the Old Covenant and by the terms of Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28 and so on? Here we still have the tabernacle of the testimony involved. And out of that were what? The Ten Commandments. They were in there and probably are in there today in heaven. And God is going to open that and he's going to take out those tape tablets of stone and he's going to judge the world by those commandments whether they admit that they exist or not. They're done away. but They're going to come out of that holy of holies and there they're going to be and the world's going to be judged by them. scary. And the seven last plagues are attached to them. 
So the plagues that he mentions will come as a result of the cursing from disobedience will be brought upon this world in the form of the seven last plagues. That is the legal way for God to punish this world because they did not live according to the pattern of that tabernacle. Now let's finish this up in Revelation 21 because I firmly believe now that the new heavens and new earth will come at the beginning of the millennium because the new heavens and the new earth are the bride of Christ as it says here in verse 9 very clearly. Come here, I will show you the bride, the Lamb's wife, and it describes the Holy City. But notice here the context. Uh, I, John, verse 2, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. So the holy city, the New Jerusalem, is the bride. That's defined clearly here in Scripture. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them and be their God. So the tabernacle never goes away. It's temporary until it gets here, and then it is permanent. Never be moved. It'll come down probably to the location of physical Jerusalem today and be there, a city 1,500 miles cubed, and be there forever. No longer be temporary, but it will be eternal, and we, if we are allowed to be in there, will be eternal with it. And that will dry our tears. Drying the tears of the righteous, for there's no more death and no more sorrow or crying, happens to God's saints. We're the ones that are giving eternal life at that time. When the people are resurrected in the millennium or the great white throne judgment, their tears will already have been dried. They're not going to be crying when they come out of the ground in the great white throne judgment. <laughs> their problems are past. They're resurrected. That's a day of joy, not tears. And when God gives us this holy city, our tears will be forever gone from that moment on because we will have been given eternal life in the tabernacle of God. You begin to see how important it is that we build according to the pattern laid out in the Old Testament and then brought forward into the New Testament as a shadow of those things were a shadow of the way we're to build today. That's why it's so important that all those white pages back there have so much detail. They are a lesson for us in how we are to build this physical tabernacle and the building inside us not made with hands but conceived and built by the Spirit of God. So we'll stop for there today and pick up a little different segment of this tomorrow.